You want to have a one-on-one chat? Let's do it. Hello again, and thanks for listening. This is Stuart Bray, and uh, I'm just me today. Uh, I'm trying to bang this one out quickly because uh, Todd and I have been busy, and I've been behind on my recording and, and editing things, and I've been sitting on this one for a while, and I've just been so busy. I haven't had time to get around to it. So in order to expedite things, I'm just going to do the intros to myself today. So uh, this is uh, the first part of a two-part interview with Rob Freitas. This was done in November of 2016, so I've been sitting on this one for a little while. Uh, like I said, I've just been too busy to actually get around to edit and finish it off. So this is pretty dense, pretty rich stuff, and it delves very deep into the sort of psyche of mold making and the philosophy behind uh, making mistakes and uh, working with your hands. So uh, yeah, it drills pretty deep into that kind of stuff. So without further ado, here is Rob Freitas. Yeah, sure. There's a reason why they call me Freight Train. Loud. You can hear me coming, and once I get going, it's hard to stop. <laughs> I didn't make up the name. It's just a friend of mine, Wozner, he's part of the Walking Dead crew and whatnot. That's a good name, though. Freight train, yeah, man. I'm like, what are you talking about? He told me, and I think that he hesitated when he went to explain it, and uh, thinking that maybe it would be slightly insulting. Then he told me, and I'm like, I, I think I'm going to keep it. He was like, what? I'm like, no, it's because I do. It's like, you know, when you're on the job and whatnot, especially in the old days um, when everything was plaster, you know, because that doesn't mean like all molds are plaster, big or small. So there was and we're talking about a day where your bucket was like the most important part of your toolkit. Nowadays, it's like, oh, we got our gravity feed spray guns and all. Back then it was like, oh, look at that bucket. How long have you had it? Because you just go in and you mix plaster all day. And when you're doing that on a daily basis, you learn to skedaddle through the floor. Because, you know, something weird happens. It's like you start thinking about ways. So you start minimizing your batches, you know? Remember when you're trying to, like, figure, like, I need a single half digit of water? Yeah. He's trying to measure that. It's got to be the same bucket every yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, how am I going to know? I'm going to get perfect. And wow, I really messed up because I underestimated. So I got to run across there and get the. Yeah, no, I know. Used to happen all the time. See, that's the fun. I mean, I remember reading like um, Fangoria magazine. You guys probably did as well, like Gorzone and stuff. And it was always plaster molds. And they were going about, you know, like Ultra Cal and everything. We didn't have that over here. There is a big thing about the plaster in the States. Is it just you have more gypsum, I guess, over there? The uh, geology is just better for it. Um, a lot of it matters upon what they put in the water mm-hmm. because there's chemicals that uh, up and lower the pH values, which will affect the way it kicks. But so far, being in London at you know at Neil's shop, playing around with like uh, the Cristacal. Cristacal, yeah. R, Cristacal, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be their alpha plaster. It seems good. It seems strong. Doesn't seem to have any of the secret ingredient to Ultra Cal Thirty in the states is pottery or the Portland cement. Because Hydrocal and pottery, the beta plasters, they're very similar except they don't have the Portland cement, and that's also where the color comes from. Mm-hmm. So I've tried mixing cement with. People do it. It, go, it. it makes the right color. I don't think I've got the mix right yet. The strength. No, it's there. a very particular because. You're battling the grain. Yeah. And I also think, you know, these days, 
I don't think they're baking out the plaster dust like they used to because that's a, another thing that they do. Um, a lot of the beta plasters, which I mean like the hydrocal, the pottery plaster, you know, the white, they call them beta, but we know them as porous. Um, they're baked out. I mean, in the old days, they used to do like the, uh, they call them the throwaway molds, right? The temporary molds. Um, they used to just, that's why they didn't use reinforcement because they would use the plaster when the mold was done. They would re-grind it up and they would bake it. Now, one of the things they do with an alpha plaster is not only do they bake it at a higher temperature, but it's also in an oven that's pressurized. And, at least as far as the U.S. gypsum alpha plasters, they have Portland cement in the mix where the, the beta or the, you know, the porous plasters do not. And, you know, because I, I remember, like, when I was younger, and it was just the whole goal of being a mold maker was mastering the two plasters because the only clays they had to use was like Roma for appliances Mm -hmm. and then anything that was a cowl or a 10 foot creature it was all wet clay you know and so it was just mastering those two plasters and I used to always hear it's like well the plaster's not like it used to yeah maybe but you can still make it work yeah it does seem that maybe they don't bake it at such a high pressurized temperature and maybe they're just adding a little less Portland cement. But then you just adjust accordingly. You can, but I just think there's other tricks that, you know, knowing that there's some Portland cement in there, you know, I remember when I was younger, friends of mine were teaching me about soaking a mold as it cures, soaking a core as it cures. So like say you had a head matrix and you do an ultra cal core. They would wait, and the second that it started to steam, as it, it, it's beginning its heating cycle, right? Because that's when it's going to start to calcinate. It's going to have a chemical reaction. The hotter it gets, the stronger it gets. So that at that time, they would soak it completely, and then they would wrap it in a plastic bag and make it airtight. And you would be able to feel it through the bag. They'd go, come over here, touch it. You, It'd be like piping hot, almost hard to touch. And then they reminded me, it's like, well, when your grandpa, like, remember when they do the sidewalks in the parking lots with the concrete? When they were done for the day, they would sit in, like, a lounge chair, right? They would have a hose, like a garden hose with a spray nozzle. And they'd probably have a beer, a cigar, and they'd be soaking the plaster. Because as it seemed, as it cured... It's what a leaving... Yeah. Yeah. But the way to really enhance the temperature was to put water back in it. Right? Because eventually the water is going to leave. But if you add water while it's curing, because it's steaming and throwing the water out, Mm -hmm. what they found and what I learned was with the alpha plasters, if you reintroduce water as it's going through its heat cycle, you raise its temperature, which increases the chemical reaction and the temperature. And it calcinates to make a much firmer plaster, or alpha plaster, rather. Mm. And, yeah, it's, it works, man. It's just amazing how you, you get, like, a, a lot more plaster molds in the States than we have over here. I don't know if it was because... It was, yeah, it's... I don't know if we had... If we, is it because we have resins more, or is it that we use resins because we didn't have the plaster? Because we have a big plastering history over here. But I mean, you know, 
does get used oh, no. in the shops. Uh, yeah. It's just weird how, like, whenever I used to watch molds being made, right. I was with stone, and I'm like, we didn't, you know, oh. I'd be making, I was like, if I was doing that job in England, yeah. I had a fiberglass that, I wouldn't have used plastic, because it'll... Kind of from what I'm seeing, and talking about big plaster molds, the first thing that I think of is Alien. Was it a laser disc? Behind the scenes, uh-huh. they show them doing the plaster mold of the space jockey. <laughs> big old buckets and just chucking that plaster out. Like, yeah, so I'm well aware that they do it over here. I, I think part of it is this. Some of the English places I see... They seem to pay a little more attention about air extraction, right? And also, there just happens to be a couple chemicals that are different when it comes to the polyester usage. I also think the cooler climates kind of assist it. They help it in a little way. Where I think in the States, especially Los Angeles, a lot of the shops that I first encountered when I worked, there wasn't a lot of air extraction going on. So a lot of the times we did some just bozo moves and made some ultra cow molds that were huge and like I think I'm still going to feel it when I'm older, right? It's coming. But a lot of it was because there was no air extraction. The option was to go out and work in the parking lot in the 100 degree sun. Also, like with working in polyesters and cooler temperatures, if you learn to like utilize the catalyst in a proper amount, you can find your user-friendly window and Sometimes in California, it's just so hot. I mean, you're just crossing your fingers hoping it doesn't set up on you. Mm. But I think a lot of it, like these days, the environment, you see a lot of shops that maybe changed to fiberglass molds, but really didn't concentrate, enhance, or improve the air extraction, unfortunately. Yeah. But I go, everywhere I go, I do polyester and plaster, and it seems to be kind of constant wherever I go maybe it's just about technique so I've got something here I want to show you yeah you mentioned that I want to bring bring this along because this is something this is something my dad found I think uh, we used to to have a metal detector and uh, this was found in a a field between uh, where we lived in Canterbury in Dover so what was your dad's name Dennis Dennis yeah Right. He, he, he doesn't do it anymore, but we used to have a, a thing. So check this out. This is a this is a bronze axe head from this is the uh, mid Bronze Age, it's about fifteen hundred BC. It's got a seam on it. That's the reason I brought it to you to look at. It has because, a seam on it because it's the oldest thing I've ever handled that has a seam on it, and it's just interesting. As as mold makers, it's still the thing that we work around, and it's just funny to think that that's they kind of chased it on the side. Uh-huh. It's there, but it's almost like see, uh-huh. and they tried to get rid of it. And here they didn't care. This must be the underside then. So you this was same. there was no handle with it. No, you'd have a handle separately, and that kind of sounds so. But when he located, this, oh no, 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 it no. was just yeah, pretty cool, huh? But that's just the fact that it has a seam. It's got a, it was molded. Yeah. So they made either a stone or a clay mold and chunked those out. Yeah. How many mold, you know. I know they've been doing lost wax molds for a while, but wow. I mean, they may even carve that out of stone. You know, two halves. You you think the original? Oh. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. So someone would have figured out, how can we locate the fact that they go together right and all that? Do you know what I mean? The same yeah, kind of taking problem. months to do it. And then later he's like, I think I have it sorted. Let's try casting one. Yeah. Then they cast one and it gets lost in the dirt for a century and then yeah. found. So it's uh, two and a half thousand years old. And it's just funny that someone's problem was, you know, the same, making things line up. And that still happens today. That's still a problem. I just thought that was really cool. <laughs> I'm taking this. I mean, how far back does bronze go? How long ago did you say that your uh, father found that? I found that at 35. So you've been sitting on this for a while. Yeah, he gave it to me about 20 years ago. And um, it's one of those things I kept. And he was like, oh, you sell it, whatever. And I'm like, and they're not expensive. You can buy it for 250 quid. Or it's not a huge amount. But it's more the fact that it's a piece of history, you know. But it's, it's mold-related. That's what I like about it. It has a seam on it. Yeah, but that kind of of stuff really messes me up because I have this curiosity Mm -hmm. that I can't, you know, like I was showing some pictures to um, a friend of mine like recently and they're like, how do you find all these pictures of like all these old peace molds and whatnot? And like it's gotten bad enough for myself to where when I look for molds in history, I go into Google Translate. And I try to, like, okay, if I'm going to look in German or if I'm going to look for, like, a, a Norwegian, like, I, Florence, you kind of know where the craft spent a lot of time. So I go into Google Translate and I type in English, like, I'm looking for an era, plaster, piece molds, blah, you know. Then it'll print out the uh, translated verse for me. I will cut and paste. I'll go back into Google Image Search. And I use Google in a foreign language search. And these different images just go, oh. I'm like, oh. the problem is, is once, yeah, it goes from like, hey, it's 11 o'clock, maybe I should go to bed, 3 a.m. It's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that thing, rabbit holes. I'm going to be, yeah, you're going to have to send me a picture of that little bugger, and I'm going to be looking at it and like, all right, you said it's from this year, and yeah, like, what would they use them, you know, like. Everything. I just get fascinated sometimes on the, the the materials and techniques themselves. Yeah. And also, just the amount of mistakes you must have made to get to the point where that became like a process. Like, oh, I'm going to knock a couple of these out today. You know? Yeah, that hasn't changed. And that's like that with medicine, with it, with flight, with engines. I mean, everything you can think of. Yeah. We just take for granted, you know, huge amounts. Of, which is why it's kind of funny when people lose their ship and something goes wrong in a, in a class. You kind of go, well... <laughs> Rule that's how, that's how we how we learn all the stuff we know. Yeah, that's kind of maybe our generation gets it. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking that the younger generation sometimes when you communicate with eye contact and say you know, messing up is kind of how you learn, and they're like, yeah, 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 I got it. I'm yeah. like, messing up is kind of hard to get used to, and they don't know how to react to that. No, they kind of train for the test nowadays. Yeah, it's not good because you know a lot of times people are like. When we start talking about some of the old shops I used to work in, when you know the materials really started to to change, you know, I'm looking for something. Like, I'm not being rude. I'm looking for the, the an article relating no, to no, the no. things. So carry Go on. for it. Yeah, but I, you know, like one of the shop, like when I started working at Steve Johnson's, he's the guy that likes to open up the envelope a little bit, kind of like the the materials that we used to use there. The ideas, I do think it comes from his time at Rick's and Rick was the same way and like through the 70s and he kind of got it from Dick Smith mm-hmm. I think out of all that American werewolf crew I think the one person that kind of carried on that let's do something different 
you know, because you can look back at like the abyss, and you know, and various things that Steve and his employees, his crew, what they came up with. Like I remember sitting in that shop in like '94, and when that whole plastic bag thing started, mm-hmm. and they started hooking vacuums and monofilament, and I'm like, this is something that they use a soldering iron, They're using air pressure monofilament wire and here's this seven foot thing in front of you built out of plastic bags and it's an organic creature and i'm like who the heck comes up with that bill bryant you know the l200 fabricator that come up with the stay puff marshmallow man and i i also think like at that time it was maybe an important part in my own career because a lot of the mold making ideas you know we talk about my grandpa and even my dad was kind of versed but I also spent a lot of time, like before I ever made molds, I had read a lot about it. And I think that's why I, I have a special connection to the history of it. So by the time I like became a mold maker, I was like, oh, it, you know. You are primed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you absorbed it up. And so I I'd moved to L.A. and worked at a few shops. And then, like, a, a strange thing happened. Yeah, I went to, a, like, I met Moto Hata. He became a mentor. Um, he and Nori Honda used to work with me, and they Nori used to be a mold maker at Steve's. So he's like, hey, I'm going to introduce you to Steve Johnson. We're going to go, and maybe you can work with us. And when I worked there, it was cool. And I made molds for a little bit and still trying to please Moto at the time. But when the molds were done, Steve asked me, he's like, hey, would you like to work on the effects? And at that time, I hadn't done effects for a while. Because you just kind of floating around town trying to find mold work mm-hmm. so some of the mold makers uh, took time off and I was like no I'll, I'll stick around so I yeah I, again working with Nori Honda and then also you know at the shop at the time you had Norman Cabrera you had Gino Esafito you had Bill Corso you had Bill Bryant like everywhere Richie Alonzo you know I look around and I'm like wow you know there's a few Academy Award winners in there Gino's out there running Way to digital, you know, Norman's still pretty. I look back and I think, man, what a crew. And then the other thing that happened is because I took a step back from mold making, I started working on like effects for some of these films. And I had always been a fan of effects. It's just there's a trial and error that comes with it that you don't think about with molds. Because when you're trying to achieve an effect, there's going to be a lot of failure, and then you're going to get it cool. Mm-hmm. It's, you're going to get it right. And being a mold maker, you spend so much time and mental energy trying to avoid a mistake. Like, well, yeah, I, you can't make mistakes in a way with that something. But why well, you got to go? I mean, it's going to happen. It is, but that's but why you're I think conditioning it's yourself to like when a mistake happens. I'm like, okay, I'm really bummed. I'm going to overanalyze it, and this isn't going to happen again. Yeah. When when we started doing some of these effects. Um, whether it was like plastic bags or mechanical effects or something, like there's uh, a gestation period, an R&D period, and you're utilizing materials that are common now, but back then it was like they got a chemist over at this company and they're kind of coming up with something. And so you're part of the R&D. And you'd go home at night completely frustrated. But then you come in the next morning and a different type of conditioning started. It was almost like Steve likes to think outside the box, as did Rick before him, as did Dick Smith before him. 
if you look at the history of what they did, there's going to be a common theme of a lot of things that they made or produced and their crews that they hired, they did things that you hadn't seen before. So when I was at Steve's and when I wasn't making molds, when I started doing the effects with them, it, like there was a, a mental shift. Once you got used to the R&D and, okay, failure is part of it. But then you start thinking about things differently. And I didn't, I wasn't used to that. So like the conditioning is now altering. Like, hey, what about this? I would have never thought about that. Well, that's why we're talking about it in a group. And like, okay, cool. So you spent a few months doing a few of these effects. Materials like plastic bags and water clear urethanes and different platinum silicones, which at the time, I didn't know what the heck platinum silicones yeah, were. Yeah, it's just like black magic. It's like, yeah. yeah. I remember black toughy. I didn't know platinum silicones. And this is right, end of 93, early 94, right? But what happened was um, like kind of a, a revelation for myself. Because then when the next show came in and I went back into the mold shop, there's something had changed in my head. Because now I have this uh, R&D mentality. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, the steps that I used to follow, the education that I had primed myself with. See, now I think that's really interesting because you had obviously your mold making head on, yep. which is kind of technically necessary in order to not make a bad mold. You're trying yep. to avoid error. And then you come across the effects thing, yep. presumably because of your mold making involvement. Yep. And, and then you're bearing witness to an experimental attitude yeah. in order to, to yield, you know, you take the wheat from that in order to produce oh, yeah. something bigger. And I'm worried that nowadays, I want to swing it around a little bit to oh, how please. people learn now. Mm-hmm. I think especially a younger generation, I think they're being taught to kind of pass the test. Yep. And they're being trained to fear failure. And they don't deal with failure very well because they've got no model for it. So yeah. they're kind of almost acting like an echo chamber for like, oh, I've got to learn this, this. And they become very kind of modular in how they think yeah. rather than kind of stepping back and going, okay, this didn't work. The whole kind of Edison thing, you know, you do it wrong yeah. a thousand times in order to know what is right. You're kind of giving yourself to being able to discover something and I don't I'm, I kind of want to reintroduce that as a notion that maybe we should tell people it's okay and it, it's not going to sit well with the way people learn now because they pay money yeah. to do a course and they need to come out winning and it's well, kind of like yeah but that's not if, 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 if 10,000 people are doing that all the same way it's going to be the one guy that's thinking differently that's going to kind of fly all over them because mm. because they're all doing the same thing and they're just doing iterations of the same thing so it's, it, what I'm trying to get at is I think how you, what you were surrounded by changed when I mean, you said you had your mold making hat on and then you go across to this problem solving thing you still got your mold making hat but yep. now you're kind of thinking in terms of oh, I'm going to take uh, some chances so yeah it was an interesting ex- but, but you know like continuing on that theme mm-hmm. um, it may be part of the reason why I feel like there's a few reasons why I feel compelled to pay it forward I mean, I like to pay it back, and I'm going to do a lot of that. But paying it forward, like, especially after Moto passed away, there was, like, because I used to have these conversations with him, and he was my educator, and we used to sit and have dinner and these long talks. And then when Moto passed, I kind of craved that interaction. I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it did seem to fall in place where I became the mentor, 
role. And then I was looking for like younger people to, as Moto used to do with me, kind of pass on what you've learned. Like a, it's a mental perspective. But also at the same time, as you said, there's a lot of people now that, you know, their mentality is not built to maybe endure, to look at things differently outside the box. They want maybe to attend a school, pay for a certain curriculum, come out, celebrate, and think that's their e-ticket to the, like, okay, now I'm in. Yeah. And maybe I don't hold it against the younger generation as much, or the less experienced, because there may be older folks joining in as well. Because I do, like, look, if I never would have stayed at Steve's at that time, yeah, I would have kept my conditioning. Well, that's it. I don't. I don't feel like it's right. anyone's fault. I think it's a right. case of like they, my kids. My kids, they don't get that chance. No, I think it's important to go. Oh, I see how I felt about things. I see how you think about things, and I see some of the things you're doing now are stopping you from advancing. So I feel it my duty to, to oh, advise yeah. you that I think you need to look up. I'm not saying here exactly. are the answers. I'm saying this is how to think, so that yeah. you can find your own answers. It's not a case of remembering that's, stuff. Uh, that's a huge part of it, and. It's just out, you know, it, it is an outside of the box. I know that's a popular metaphor, but when you're doing something technical, everybody, like, I think the artistic notion is, you know, it, it's related to a creativity and doing something new and going a different direction. And when people normally think of a technical contribution, they think it's a well and tried practice based out of repetition. And I find that. That's important, that's a foundation, but also as important is the idea that you have so much experience and such a foundation that whenever a new task comes up, and it still goes back to Steve's, and then what happened, you know, after Steve's, when I, I was just I like kind of like mentally thirsty, and materials were starting to alter, you know, epoxies were coming into the mold shop. You know, these different silicones were coming in, you know. At the first it was tin, and then later it came platinum. But, you know, there was like a, just a really big change going on. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, you know, I had mold making friends that were really practiced. Like, you know, it was an art form. If you can make an ultra cow mold that can go in and out of the oven like 50, 60 times. Because I worked with people that used to do that. You know, like Gunner, it's like, I used to read about him, he could do it. Richard Ruiz, he can do it. It's like, when I went to Steve's, I met a guy, you know, Brent Baker, and I knew that Brent had worked on, like, the first Gremlins, being from the Bay Area. It's like, oh, wow, that, that means something, you know. And you see this craftsmanship. You know, it's like everything is, it's an intentional control of the material based upon... Uh, almost like a thought of like the design is all that process is handled all in advance like you can look at a sculpture and it's almost like someone does a a projection like using your own mind's eye like you may alter it a little bit like a photoshop experiment but you can look at a sculpture long enough and then all of a sudden you can see the finished mold like this is what I'm going to produce and you can see this weird kind of translucent image over the sculpture mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then that's when you begin it, it, and it's like when you when your mind's eye first starts to develop that technique it, 
it's kind of scary. And then what happens is, is maybe you're unsure, so you go to someone next to you in the shop and you you have that conversation, and the person doubts you, and you're like, okay, I'm not experienced enough or old enough to... And then sooner or later you get to a point, you're like, well, I'm just going to do it that way because I believe it. Mm. If you genuinely can't see a problem with it, maybe you got to go with it and just see. It, it, but, and it's weird because... Like, even this day, it's like, you know, when I'm back in Los Angeles, I work with some people and they're still slightly conditioned. And I've learned as I travel, like, you know, like the flat mold concept, for instance. I've done, you know, I've watched Neil's videos. I have his DVDs. I go to these places. I see the work of Love Larson and some of these guys that are doing these, like, flat molds. And then you go back to L.A. and then, you know, even Neil Gorton comes out and visits me. He's like... Why are all these shops doing these really, really expensive and time-consuming epoxy cores and negatives? Because sometimes they're really simple pieces that, you know... They would work as flat molds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, I remember, like, even recently, it's like such a dismissed thing as Neil Gorton did a two-piece, like, a two-part video for the Stan Winston School. And he, like, the idea of flattening out a sculpture onto a piece of wood... There's always been a little bit of margin for error, a little guesstimation. And so maybe you can mold the sculpture, pull off the flat mold, save the sculpture on the flat piece of wood or glass, run a piece, and if you need to modify it, you can readdress it in the sculpture that you saved. But then I remember watching the the thing he did for Stan Winston School where it's a, a tracing that a wig maker uses, right? So you wrap the plastic around the body form or the head form, right? And he, then he used tape, he like added some firmness to the to the contours of the face, and then with a sharpie, he outlined where that appliance would like to be in the future, and then he took that thing and because of the way it was designed, he was able to basically adhere it to the back of glass, so you're able to look through the sculpting base instead of a piece of wood with something you can see through. And then he had flattened out already the contours of where he wanted his cutting edge. So then you could just immediately block out and sculpt that cheek and you know, that whole cheek appliance. And, just, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at that going, a lot of people are going to look at this and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, that's a big step. Because it saved you all that work. And money and, and time. time. But you can also put that back into other things and make these other things much better. Oh, my. Yeah, it makes oh, a my. big difference. Oh, yeah. And but then know, it gets adopted by, by people who don't have the means to do the epoxy stuff. I think that's where it really gains momentum is when it starts oh, happening yeah. in kitchens yeah. rather than workshops because there's a fucking lot more kitchens in the world who yeah. are watching these videos. And oh, yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, and that's, that's what we need. Happening. Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. I mean, personally, it's like, you know, it, how many times I go out when I hear people bitching about CGI? I will look at the people if they're participating in, I like to call the physical, because I think sometimes CGI can be practical. So I refer to the physical environment as that. And I think I hear a lot of people complaining about the competition, but they're not maybe doing their part into strengthening our own army, so to speak. Right? They would look at the younger generation and a less knowledgeable generation they're less experienced generation and they make well a he doesn't know who so-and-so is i'm like well when he told you that did you take a moment to 
perhaps introduce that person to say, well, Dick Smith is the person that did, and then list some accomplishments. Yeah, not just be smug about it. Or did you just not say anything and then show up to me later and I had to hear 30 minutes about it? Like, do our part. It's like when I was a kid, I remember I met people. Like, I can tell you the first time that I was at a shop, they went out to lunch. I went out to lunch with a group of people that I had just barely met. We were working over at uh, Lazzarini's shop, and a group of people got together. And this guy, Russell Seifert, showed up, right? He was He's up at, uh, I think, I believe that he still works at Leica. Oh, at wow. the time, he was a mold maker that shared his time at Rick Baker's Cinovation and Matthew Mungle's shop. And I can tell you right now, I remember it as if it was yesterday, the moment that I didn't know who he was. I didn't know him by face or recognition. But I will tell you the vibe that flowed through me the moment that someone looked at me and said, Hey, have you ever met Russ? He works over at Rick's. And when I turned and made eye contact with him, and he's, you know, he's a large New York fellow, very polite, looked at me and said, Hey, man, how's it going? The emotion that went through me, was, it was like electricity. It was like, oh, my God. Now, as my older age, I have to recall those emotions. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important for those of us that respect the craft, if we do believe in that notion... Now we're the older folks. Perhaps it's important for us to stand before the younger generation and maybe share some stories and provide that electricity for them. Yeah, because it's there to be felt. They've just been denied it to this point. Russ had no idea when he walked into that bar and he was going to have a beer and pizza that there was going to be someone 12 years younger sitting over there not saying a word. And his simple introduction was something that I went home and like couldn't stop thinking about like I need to get to know him he's working at Rick's my god how cool is that it was like like you feel it and I kind of like to remind myself of moments like that you know there's one thing to learn the materials and the craft there's another thing too it's like instead of complaining about the competition you know like sometimes you get into global conversations I'm like I don't know, I have some really amazing friends that are really amazingly talented that just happen to be born outside of the America. That doesn't bother me at all. Because it's about the craft and not about birthplace. But also when I'm around younger people, I try to, you know, sometimes you got to bite your tongue a little bit and just give them a shot. Just provide a little jolt and see if they feel that and if they don't well you don't have to let them know that it's not going to sort out perhaps for them in the future yeah Yeah. there's been many a times where people looked at me and said hey when i first met you i didn't like look at where you've gone because maybe never have guessed they're like you know you didn't exhibit oh yeah because when you're younger or whatever yeah like how can you identify someone's potential by a 30 second conversation yeah yeah i think that's it it's giving them a chance and you can certainly light their fire. Yeah, you can be a conduit for them. You know, they might get fired up. Yeah. In fact, they haven't been fired up yet. Doesn't mean you get to, yeah treat them any less. Yeah, because you know, and when I meet people these days, like as far as the craft and mold making, the first thing I tell them it's like, look, go buy a bag of ultra color plaster. 
Because the funny thing about that material is it's still really cheap. Mm -hmm. And when you're making a mold and you're learning about undercuts and, you know, maybe like the keys and the drafts on certain flanges and walls, these days the molds are too strong perhaps. So if you do something wrong, you make a mistake. The material won't allow you to learn that lesson at that moment. But for... Like one-fifth of the price. You can get a bag of UltraCal, and you can create these makeups. I mean, look at all the shows that used it back then. Nothing's changed. Yeah. It's just the craftsmanship. That, well, the attention to detail and education's changed. But I can't tell you how many things I learned when we used to work with a plaster or UltraCal mold. Because if you missed an undercut, or if you, you know, when you're flashing and you're doing your little, you don't learn to avoid the extreme angles until that little point chips off. Mm -hmm. Or if you do an undercut on a neck and you're opening the mold and you want to turn the radio down because you're trying to listen for that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, back then it was, it was kind of like a terrifying feeling to look at your mold and it just cracked because you made a mistake. But in a, in a positive light, if you look at that and think about why it happened, the, the weakness of the material is actually allowing you to learn a lesson. Because when you do get it right, that weaker material, well, it won't present itself as something so weak. Like as your skills and observation skills, your engineering, your you know, recognition of undercuts knowing what not to do as that increases then all of a sudden the material's working fine and that weaker material is actually part of the education mm -hmm. that I think a lot of the students or you know people with less experience are missing out on now yeah because they want to go out and, and use epoxy and look epoxy's great but you know you still may have issues that if you would have learned with different materials if you're going to spend that much money I see epoxy molds that don't work so well but they spent so much money it's like I don't want to tell them that instead of $400 you could have spent 40 that's right? true it's and true. I want a silicone skin it's like yeah. well gelatin we used to use gelatin a lot and you know, like foam latex okay you don't have an oven you probably have a friend that has connection to an oven learning how to run foams okay Learning how to paint foam is okay. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you could get a mold to cut a foam latex edge, the silicone makeups are going to work even easier because there's actually vinyl on the cutting edge. Absolutely. But it it's is a good, a, it's a good ground. Yeah, it's, it's that it's that thing. And I've I've seen, I think I think with like the prosthetic makeup training at the colleges, I've seen. It happens a lot where they, they'll, they'll get them to do something very big and extravagant. It'll be like oh, one yeah. of the second or third thing they've made, and yep. it's half a body or a full body, but oh, yeah. big. And they, I, I get the impression they're trying to encourage people to make big, grand gestures because it looks good in a catalog for the next year. Maybe. And they'll, they'll have maybe 20 or 30 students in there, and maybe one or two of them will be really good. Yeah. But then they'll come up after the trade show and they go, How do you get a good edge? Or how do you get the color to match the skin? Yeah. And you kind of go, Those are, That's ground basic stuff. You could have figured out on a nose. So yeah. it's the same principle. I think it's a case of doing something small well, 
and when you've mastered it, yeah. it kind of scale up you don't need to run to the expensive things thinking you're going to bypass these mistakes that those mistakes belong to cheap materials it's I, not the case at I all I completely it's, agree yeah because a lot of times you listen to people that they do a product and when they present a like say they work on a show they do this gig they show you a picture and before you even had a moment to analyze they look at you and remind you that well we didn't have the time and money to do it well then they'll tell you they did epoxy molds and silicone skins mm -hmm. and you're looking at them going maybe it was less about the time and money more about the lack of skill yeah Perhaps. I mean, I've worked with the other materials that would have saved you, well, a lot of money and, and also a lot of time. And maybe it would have produced a better product. It's Sometimes you look at the older products and, you know, we still... We, we use it to vouch the actual skill of those that used it before. Right? Sometimes you can look at what was done before, before all the advancements in material, and you will hear people say, like, look at how that guy, like, you can go back to Jack Pierce. They weren't even using appliances. It's 85 years later, and the images are, like, cemented in pop culture. Everybody knows what those creations look like. So was it about the materials back then? Was it about time or money? He just had an image in his head. He thought about it. And he made it happen, and he used whatever he can find. Mm -hmm. So maybe part of the problem is we have so many materials these days, right? The people that don't educate themselves on the differences between the materials and how they interact with each other, what materials you actually need to learn how to use, and then maybe the ones that, for extravagant circumstances, they can... If you learn how to work with certain materials and you get silicone skin and you know how to color it before you cast it and you know how to paint it when it's done, yeah, it looks beautiful. But I see a lot of people that if they didn't learn how to paint foam before and didn't know how to, like, if you can create an opaque material and make that look translucent, when you get silicone, you're going to know how to minimize yeah. your effort. It's like taking that's a, the trick. Yeah, it is. It's like taking off a backpack and running around. It's like yeah, it's easier in a way, wouldn't you know? Yeah, because I see stuff. people when they get silicone and they they paint it. And, and they, what'd you do? You, I've seen people take slush latex and make it look translucent. Mm -hmm. You know, you give that person a piece of silicone and they'll take the time to think about the base color. And then when you do the paint job, they'll approach the layers in a way to where they're not covering the translucency. Yeah. They also know not to make it too translucent from the start. You don't want that waxy see-through look. You know what I mean. It's like So when it comes to materials, I think the most advantageous thing that you can do, and techniques as well. I mean, I still to this day try to look back, learn the names of the people from the past and what they were doing with what materials they did. And so, yeah, I have different materials available to me. But a lot of times those, those pictures, they're hard to find. And sometimes you read the literature and the articles, and they, they come up with different opinions of what was actually going on like 60, 70, 80 years ago. But if you spend time and analyze what they were doing, um, when you incorporate that experience and knowledge into what's available, maybe that's what helps you 
decipher out of the now thousands of available materials, that's how you can pick and choose what will do the job. Because they're expensive and they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's different companies. I mean, it used to be like like for sculpting, it was Roma clay or it was wet clay. Yeah. I do think... You know, it was like... And now, like, how many plastilines and yeah. Romas and Chavants and monster clays and... How does someone make a choice? Well, you make a choice based on your educational foundation and your certain craft. Yes. That's true. Because I think a lot of things are informed by very, very good search engine optimization or... You know, someone makes a good product, someone makes an iteration of that, someone makes an iteration. And then suddenly this, the market's leading what people are using because they know about it because they've spent a lot of money advertising and drilling down to what they know you're looking at. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. They've got to make a living. But then that oh, becomes really? a different thing from maybe 50 years ago where there wasn't a market. Like you couldn't go and find 20 different kinds of plastic. Pre-internet. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Where Phone it was like, books, you yellow know, pages. If you use this yeah. stuff, it's because, you know, you, you used it. and <laughs> Yeah. No, no one was like digging a tunnel to your brain to try and sell you this. No. You know, it was like it was there because you already needed it. There was a video I found on YouTube. I don't know if you saw it. It was about globes being made. Oh no, no, no! Did you, you see? It? Yes, I think I may have sent it to you. Yeah, you did. And did you watch that? Oh yes. And I remember seeing it. And the first thing I thought to myself was, the... "Look how much fucking work goes into making one of these. There's no way you could make one and sell it now yep. for that because you just get blown plastic in a mold. Yeah. You know, they'd be five bucks each." I had no idea that you used a rotisserie rotational planer. No. Because a friend of mine, like I've seen it, like um, if if you look, they have basically that wooden grid on Mm -hmm. the side Mm -hmm. where the diameter has been kind of cut away and slightly over-exaggerated in the diameter. And then on top of that, they had that piece of metal, like a blade. And that basically they had the, well, it was just like a rotisserie, a rod. Yep. And as they built up the plaster, it became, yep. yeah, and then you just keep building it up until it, it makes contour with that piece of metal. And that metal didn't move. But as you rotated that ball of plaster, that metal was, it was just shaping it. And there you can see him add a little more plaster and adding a little here, a little there and moistening it. And when he pulled, when he stopped turning it, and pulled it up, and it was a perfect shiny ball of plaster. I was like, okay, people like to look at people like myself and others these days and apply certain adjectives. All these people that are masters, I want to get in line behind that machine and simply see if we could get anywhere close to what that gentleman did with a big couple batches of plaster and a metal rod and just spinning it around like that. He's just an expert hand. Yeah. You see his hand go in the bucket of his bare hand. Yeah. And that plaster. Amazing. Spinning it. Because I tell you gorgeous. what, I think I would struggle big time. But that that's the same kind of mentality that when I was younger, it doesn't fear, like it doesn't drive me away. Yeah. It encourages me to like... Have you ever run plaster? To me? I've done it. We, we set one up on a vertical and we did an egg. But it was only like, like six inches. Okay. And we actually like kind of pre-configured, but we made a core out of like uh, biscuit foam uh-huh. that was kind of sanded, and then we did like a layer of plaster bandage and slacked it. Yeah. So we knew that we only had a half inch, or like maybe I don't know, like five to ten mil, right? Yeah. 
So, and then on the side, the wooden thing, you know, basically the jig that had the metal edge that would be a perfect, it's, it's a perfect half shape, mm -hmm. right? It's like one radius of the, the shape you're going for. And as you move that closer, you just keep adding plaster to it. But we only had it built, like, it's pretty easy to add a yeah. thin amount. Yeah. And you could actually, like, kind of cover it. And, and I'm spinning it, but I'm not even getting it anywhere near the wood or the metal yet. And then, okay, now I start turning it. That guy built it, like, it was huge. Yeah. You're talking about, like, 30 pounds of plaster. Yeah, it was, it was a good... 30 inches wide. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's just looking, and it was high gloss. Yeah. I love stuff like that. I well, do. What, what made me laugh was that then from then, that goes to someone that then puts these strips of paper oh, on that have to line up. The then somebody else fills it. Then somebody else fucking hand paints the gaps. Then somebody yeah. else... You see him painting the seams? Yeah. That was like, what? A, at no point was like, as, as, as complex and sophisticated as that, that still wasn't anywhere near the end. It was like, yeah. fuck, the amount of work. You know, the one thing I really liked about the video was watching the guy being near an extractor when he was doing the clear coat. <laughs> Even back then, they were more prepared for the, the, the spraying of the chemicals than some shops are now. No, I, yeah, it was... I like finding videos like that. I like how they made that. it. I love to see that. Have you seen the, um, the, the Walt Disney riveting videos? Walt Disney, uh, the animation as the animation company, they made a bunch of videos to train people how to make rivets uh -oh. in the war effort because obviously lots of people suddenly needed to be employed to build aircraft. So lots of yep. people that were capable but had never riveted. So they were just showing the principles of riveting and making flush riveting and how to fasten metals together in different ways. And they Walt Disney made all these different videos to demonstrate, like you do with tutorials. Yeah, and that's what I like to do. I like to do like cross sections of things and yep. go into unnecessary detail. Just to show the principle of why this flushing for that and what happens to air if it's not. Yep. It was amazing. Yeah, if you look them up, Walt Disney riveting I'm going to have to look that up. And it just shows you like 10 minute videos of like, you know, what a flush rivet is and how you count the sink at first. And it's amazing. It's and incredible. It's all about the foundation and methodology behind it. Yeah. Kind of like our craft. Yeah, it is. They can keep changing the materials, right? Yep. But if you learn that basic foundation... They're trying to do the same thing, ultimately. Yeah. 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 Wow. And if you do it, that that's something that, um, you know, like, okay, I like to think outside the box, right? Um, sometimes I get people saying that, well, maybe we don't need to do it that way, or maybe it takes too long. There's a certain joy that I get. Yeah. Because there's a lot of, you know, I have some very talented friends that are good mold makers, you know? Like Carl Lyon, is, he works at Vince Van Dyke's. And he and I hang out a lot, and he's he's really talented. Unfortunately, I think for Carl, he misses out on something that I was advantageous to in my younger days. See, these days in Los Angeles, there's not a lot of shops. I mean, there's a few, but they kind of stick to their own. So when I look back, I think something that you know I personally was really fortunate to be able to do was... As you're learning, we were constantly jumping from one studio or one shop to another. And, you know, usually when you get to a new studio, they say, they like to remind you that, well, we're not the other place. This is how we do it. And I'm like, okay. So, like, every two weeks or a couple months, we were in a new environment that liked to use different materials and liked to do it a different way. Right? So you couldn't help but, like, just be exposed 
so once you're you know like once i got to like steve's like i mentioned and you know at xfx you get that outside the but and you're, you're hopping around the shops after working at xfx you're being exposed to all these different preferences mm-hmm. by all these different studios you're just soaking it up you're soaking up but you're so adaptable right you know so like it's not like like not by choice oh, I can't almost do it your by way. command and, and, and but but it's like you know some people might switch around and go, oh, I don't like how you do that. And then they drag their heels and then they're not in next week. Because, right. You know, no, they it, tell that happened lines. a lot. Like, like, you have to, yeah. And I remember there were days to where, you know, um, you try explaining to people. It's like, hey, I'm a mold maker. I called this shop up. And he's like, I think we have a gig. I think in about three and a half weeks, we'll have a sculpture ready for you. And I think that maybe I'll be able to give you two days work to mold said sculpture so I'm like okay so next month I got two days booked a little different than it is now mm-hmm. but that's also that's what led me to jump into all these you just take what you can get only after experiencing that for a few years um, do you realize that wow that was really beneficial because now when I meet people and like I mentioned Carl before because he just happens to be like when I met him, and like you meet people and you, you can talk about your craft and they get it. And I'm like, man, you know, like back in the day when we used to go to all these shops, you know, like uh, when I work with Carl recently, it's like, well, I've never used epoxy. You know, to be in a shop and to, you know, work with somebody and, and really? Wow. It's because, you know, epoxy is kind of somewhat unnecessary. Mm-hmm. A lot of shops are conditioned to think they need to use it. And it's nobody's fault. You, sometimes you land at a shop and you're going to have a steady job. And maybe that's the one shop you work at for 10 years. And then you're conditioned to use certain materials in a certain way that they like. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, maybe part of the way I go about my um, thinking has a lot to do with not only was I really conditioned in a, in a very amazing way to think outside the box, but I was also very fortunate to be part of the industry in a time where we had like 50 to 60 options of shops. Like there was a lot going on. You want to work at night, you want to work at weekends. And everywhere I went, I didn't put up a fight. I mean, still to this day, the same mentality carries. 25 years ago, I would go to a different shop and look forward to using different materials and different techniques. Because all I'm doing is... The more you learn, the more likely I'm going to be working more often. Because mm-hmm. if someone called me up and said, I need you to make a mold and I need you to make it this way. If I didn't know how to make that material, I couldn't say yes to the job. But as I learned to make these materials work, uh, I was able to say yes to more work. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, if they said, okay, now this job's done, now I need this type of mold. I know that material, my job just lengthened. So... If I take that same kind of predicament, now I look at myself and maybe perhaps that's why I like to travel. Because L.A. has kind of been conditioned. There's a few shops that are still working, you know, relatively busy. They have the materials they like. They have the techniques that they like. So the world's spinning. Why why change it? That's how they're thinking. Right. And so for myself, I'm, I'm older but I still, I'm 47 now, I still crave the same experience I got when I was 22. The only difference is for me to go and find people that use different materials 
and perhaps different ideas and different techniques, uh, it requires an airplane. Yeah. And maybe jumping over the pond. And I have never been one that... I don't care where the person was born. Or, oh, the job's going there and it's tax... You know, people like to justify things. I'm like, if you went over there and met some... Like some of the most talented people I've ever met have nothing to do with America. And it was a, a real refreshing thing to like when I first got a passport and left for the craft. And you meet some of these guys. Like you meet a Brian Best or a Rohir Samuels or a Flora Schuler, a Neil Gordon or a Dennis Petkoff. You know, a Jason Doherty over at Weta. You meet these guys and there was like this weird... Like inside feeling, like a warmth, like there's others that they mm. go about it the same way. Mm. It's like and, a, it's like a condition, and it crops up. Like, oh yeah, like I don't know, like and they were the like, or something. It happens everywhere. You yeah, know, it's just, and, and it's you know, there's an odd, weird thing. Like, okay, because I've been fortunate to work on certain shows with certain people. There's a certain. All right, some people know who I am before I meet them. That's fine. And so when I look at their work, I'm not, it's, I'm forgetting what they know of me. I, it doesn't matter to me. I'm looking at their craft and their execution. And sometimes I'm surprised that when I look at their work, I'm like, man, your work is amazing. Can we sit and talk about it? You know, like Joran Lundstrom is another person. Like way back in 2007, you know, I met him. And we used to sit up at the pubs when we were in Prague working on a Narnia film. And, you know, it was amazing to me to meet someone that was so, like, really, really good at makeups and sculpture. And then, like, he was able to talk to me on a technical level. Mm -hmm. Because in L.A., that wasn't as popular. It's really departmentalized. So if I, you It's know, interesting how that is the, the case in the States. I don't know oh, yeah. why that happens. I noticed this. Have you seen 21 Jump Street? The movie? Yeah. yeah. Have you guys seen that? And then there's a sequence at the beginning where they go back to their high school. And this is Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. Yep. They're dressed up. And this, this whole sequence is them going back to the school. Yeah. And he goes, oh, look, there's the jocks. Oh, look, there's the nerds. There's yeah. the goths. There's the cheerleader girls. Yeah. And it's funny because there's like these little... And I guess, I don't know if you've ever been to American high school. Well, you like, get these little clusters. Yeah. And the reason it kind of jived, I guess, was because that seems like a mentality you have. I think more things get very... If you do this, then you must believe this, or you have that set of opinions. Mm. It probably not as rigid as that, but I wonder if that's that's a thing where, particularly film industry, like you'll have people that maybe sculpt makeups because they're not in union, they can't go and set and apply them. But surely you'd be really good at sculpting makeups if you were now, you know, if you taste your own cooking, yeah. you adjust how you cook because you know what it's going to come out like. The other no, one. absolutely. So it seems like. A, big thing and it's funny you were saying that certain shops may not do well, that it, it seems like it's just something like as I said before I like to read about the past and those people and technicians and artists from the past if you actually look back you will find that most of the artists did the technical stuff I mean that's something like you know on the New York side it was someone like Dick Smith you know on the west coast side you had you know quite a few of them Chambers was like as far as my childhood, John Chambers was a very important one. Absolutely. It was like, here is, so, like, he made the mold, he ran the foam, met a young Tom Berman, you know, Planet of the Apes happened. Oh, with a tie and a cigarette. Yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> you know, but then somewhere in the 70s, things started, you know, Rick Baker was the same way. Mm -hmm. 
It's like you read about these guys and they were in their bedrooms and they were sculpting and molding and casting and painting and applying. And they did everything. Something changed in the 70s and when we entered the 80s, these people started training crews. But then somewhere in the 80s, the department started. Yeah. Like Gunner was the first person I ever read about that was a mold maker. Because when I was a kid, one of the things that, while well, I hesitated to think that I wanted to move to L.A., to do what I like, I like molds. I like the craftsmanship. It's what my grandpa did. It would be cool, but I'm not sure if I want to be a makeup artist. I don't want to be on set, perhaps doing makeups. And then, in the late seventies and early eighties, people like Gunner became a mold maker. Yeah, I remember the Rick Baker Cinefix issue, and you know they talked about Greystoke and hey, we're going over to England and. Well, Gunner's got a European passport, so he can go over there with Rick. And he brought, you know, a few people with him. He brought a mold maker to come over. And I'm like, a mold maker? It's like, hey, yeah. So what I enjoy can be crap. Now, part of my passion for, like, when I was younger, the craft and everybody that does it, um, something changed to where people didn't mind the departmentalization that happened. And what I found is when I left America and I started meeting some of these talented, like you would see their, their tech, like some of the molds and the technical work, like I'd be really impressed. And I think I learned about that first because they knew that that was something I was really into. Mm -hmm. So as I met these people that I mentioned before, as I traveled to Europe, Australia, New Zealand, or even England, you know, um, they would show me their mold work. And then they would like, oh, yeah, this is a makeup I sculpted and I applied. Like Joran, that was, you know, he's one of the first Europeans that I, I really sat down. You know, I, I left the country. I went to Prague. We're at a hotel in a lobby. just, And I'm like, oh, my God. It's like, like we're talking on an extreme technical level. And then he's showing me his makeup and his sculpture work. And I'm like, this reminds me of guys that I used to read about. I'm not taking anything away from any of the artists or technicians that work in L.A. through the 80s or 90s, mm. but they did seem to pick one of the tasks involved and kind of stick there. Yeah. So it was kind of refreshing and kind of associated my older self with my younger self as kind of why I really was inspired by some of these people that came back in the earlier days because they kind of did it all. you know. And then I remember... Justin Neal from Old Life came mm -hmm. over and they had this new life form silicone mm -hmm. right he came into a shop we were working on Tron he showed me the silicone we started doing some tech talk and Justin Neal looks at me he's like you know what you gotta meet my friend Neil Gordon I'm like oh he's, I'm bringing him out for IMATS we need to get you guys together you guys would enjoy a tech talk I'm like okay and then when Neil came out to LA Flora Schuler came with him and I I don't even remember how late we stayed up just talking, yeah. showing pictures. And he was showing me what he was doing in Europe. And he does some work in London as well, but some of his earlier, like, like less... Like, I am very fascinated by the technical attempts. And it's kind of refreshing as well to see people that you never met before, who are miles and miles away, yeah. different continent. Oh, yeah. 
solving the same kinds of problems oh, the, it, in different ways. It's a kinship. It, it, oh, yeah, my God. It, it just strips away. You're like, oh, yeah. oh, my God, we're both digging in the same mine. Oh, yeah. You know? It's, and all it is is, like, I can't wait to go back. Yeah. You know, and, and nothing against with the people and the friends I work with. You know, like, I am old enough now to look at it and say, okay, some of the guys I work with, they got kids. They have all these other responsibilities. They got a mortgage. And at the time, I didn't have any of these, right? So I just... I went home and thought about molds. I went to work the next day excited about it and thought about molds, right? So I'm not sure if it's called an advantage, but at the time, a lot of the people seemed preoccupied with different stuff or maybe just not into the molds as much. Mm -hmm. But it was, yeah, it was an enlightening thing. I mean, that's why I'm in London now. You know, Neil Gordon asked me, it's like, yeah. You know, I remember going out to the, when I went out to The Hobbit, um, Rahir Samuels was out there and he had worked on Lord of the Rings and he and I got together, you know, and just like, and Jason Doherty, who was running the mold shop at the time for, and he had supervised and ran the shop on Lord of the Rings, you know, but I think because I had kind of experienced be, from the conversations with Yoran in Europe and then in LA with Neil Gordon and Flora Schuler. I, I kind of had this thirst, like the thirst that I used to have in L.A., of like traveling around to the shops. Those opportunities weren't the same. So now I was kind of still looking for those opportunities of meeting people because that's kind of how Rick Shop was back in the day. McLaughlin, Jim McLaughlin was our boss. And then I used to work with guys like Gilberto, Brian Van Dorn, Hiroshi Yada, you know, like really, really, really talented group. Of guys and we kind of worked with each other enough to where we just the egos weren't involved yeah like we we all thing. know that we're really really good at what we do mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and we all work at the same shop uh mclaughlin you know jim mclaughlin our boss he kind of just he his quote and i still use it today he used to look at me and say don't be afraid of making it your own and when i was younger i didn't realize the importance of that yeah also the luxury of having a supervisor that trusts you enough in a shop like Rick's with the responsibility being the head of department and just allowing his crew to go their own way and trusting us. Mm -hmm. You know, because I was so concentrated on coming up with something new, mm. I didn't realize at the time, like, the trust that it took. That was a chance he took on a lot of us. Yeah. But because of that, you know, and he was... Very important to, like, he had an outside-the-box approach as well. So I think a lot of us that worked at Rick's under Jim, like, learned a lot. And we're very fortunate. And then only when you, like, leave that shop and you go out and you work for other people, you start to realize the micromanaging that was occurring and the, the lack of adventure that people had. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, they were locked back in that box. And I think when that started happening, I started looking outside of the U.S., for what I used to get working at Rick's. And it was Yoran first, 2007 in Prague. And then like maybe 2008, 2009 was when I met Neil Gordon, Flora Schuler, And then when Hobbit called, um, yeah, I, I just went. And then when I was there, I met Rahir Samuels. And then I met Jason Doherty, who ran the mold shop. And then I came back and then Michael Key asked me to go out to London in 2012 and speak at the IMAT show. Mm -hmm. 
And then I met, you know, even more people. And Dennis Petkoff apparently was at that. Uh, he's a gentleman that I haven't had the luxury to meet. But I will tell you right now that I have studied that man's work. And he said, hey, in 2012, I was in the audience, you know, with Floris and Joran. And when you're was on this the audience where, it's, where it's two, snowed. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I That's when it switched to summer. That's right. The next year. <laughs> you know, and it Buses was... got stranded. And at that time, I'm on the stage, and I'm, like, talking about the so-called collapsible cores and these advanced theories. And you look out into the crowd, and there's Joran and Floris looking back at me. I'm like, you know, we can switch places, and I'd gladly sit out there listening to them. Yeah. You know, on a, as far as a digital footprint, perhaps their names aren't as popular. And that seems to be a goal of mine now and in the very near future and foremost in the future mm -hmm. is I know people appreciate my work and they like pushing my name out there. And what I hope to do is because there's a lot of people out there and some don't, they just don't get it. I'm like, there's some people doing some work that just simply amazes me. Mm -hmm. Like Gunner and some of the old timers that really got me into the craft. I think people underestimate just if you could, like, just take the time to learn who's doing the work in all parts of the world. Like Adam Johansson yeah, 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 yeah. and Damien and some of the work that them and their crew doing at Odd down in Australia. It's amazing. Yeah. And I've had the opportunity, and well, luxury actually, to be able to go out and, like, share these kind of moments where we're talking craft and showing pictures. So, like, I've met people in New Zealand, Australia, London... Prague, I have friends like Aryan, you know, he came and we worked at Rick's together on Maleficent, you know, Kazu I've known for 20 years, and look at where he's gone, and, and you know, Kazu's one of those guys, and Aryan, they're kind of people that are working in the States, but not from the States, because in the 90s, it was a thing to come to America to find the work, but they are people that, they do the makeup, you know, kind of like some of the people I mentioned before, like Dennis and Flores, they are closer to Dick Smith than most people I work with in LA. Because mm -hmm. like, people talk about the torch. You guys like Dick Smith, and to me anyways, Rick Baker. And I'm not diminishing the talents of a lot of people I've worked with, but because of the habit of departmentalizing. You know, maybe it's because they do work in Europe and they take smaller shows and they themselves choose to continue to like do each and every part of the craft. Yeah. It's still, I know some amazing sculptors, but I will always be more inspired by someone that I meet that does an amazing sculpture. And then we can go out and just at the same time, talk about the most technical collapsible core. I just get a kick at it. Like, cause I'm maybe jealous because I'm more like my strengths are in the technical part mm -hmm. artistically not so much but I still I get inspired by like wow you guys are so talented that you can sculpt that well and do makeups that well and paint that well and and you're at my level with molds most people that I work with back home I mean, they don't know who you are and I, I just it would be kind of maybe cool to I don't know maybe I just want to I kind of want to expose the people that I'm fans of yeah, to people that haven't heard of them yet. Because maybe people look at me and, you know, I'm in England because I'm teaching a class for Neil. And I'm going to go to the prosthetics event and talk about the craft. 
and maybe my hope in the future is there's some people that I've met and I think maybe next time I come to London I could sit in the crowd and I would have a really big smile on my face if the people that do some work that really inspire me got better well known for it. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It was a good, good, dense conversation. I had a lot of fun talking to Rob. It was very, very interesting. And I got a lot out of it. And I, I hope you guys did too. So listen, we really like comments. If you can comment, uh, you can comment on our Facebook page. Or if you want to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, if that's how you get our podcast, that would be good too. Uh, reviews always help us. It lets iTunes know that uh, we have an active listenership and uh, it helps us get along with the ratings. And it just means more people are likely to find us and hear about us. And it also kind of secures us more guests in the future as well because if they see that more people listen to it then they'll be more likely to come on the show um if you have any comments you want to leave you can also do that on our facebook page which is battle of bits of rubber um, surprisingly on facebook and uh, if not you can drop us an email which is stuart and todd at gmail.com and like i say keep your ears peeled for part two coming up very soon <laughs>